You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Well, I want to invite you now, as is our custom, uh, to join me in Matthew chapter 9. And so if you're new to the Bible or even new to the church, I want to draw your attention to a couple things. So if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone that'll get you access to one, you'll see a paperback Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. We want you to take uh, take that and even make use of it, not just now, but if you don't own a Bible, please let that be our gift to you. Even give that to someone else you know who may not, may not own a Bible. Uh, we want to get uh, the copy of God's Word into as many people's hands as possible. And, and so as you open it, don't be afraid of the table of contents. I believe in that paperback Bible. We're on page 475, and we'll be in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. So gospel simply means good news, and that is there's four. This is the, the first of the four gospels, or the, the, the stories of who Jesus is and what he came to do from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's also the, the first book of the New Testament. That is the, the work of God's redemption that we believe we've experienced in Christ begins to be outlined in the New Testament, in the coming of Jesus, that he brings and announces a new kingdom in himself. And so Matthew has been sharing with us who Jesus is, framed as good news. The idea that if you knew who Jesus was and what he had done for you, you would believe that's worth celebrating as good news. And so up to this point, he's introduced us to Jesus by introducing us to the miraculous narrative around his birth, the miraculous power that he, that he works publicly is the greatest show on earth in that sense, but also the most powerful and authoritative teaching that anyone has heard up to this point. For chapters 5, 6, and 7, we were in what were called the Sermon on the Mount. That is the first of the five public discourses Matthew tells us, that, that Jesus not only exercised power and authority and influence and, and the miracles that he accomplished, but also even in the words that he spoke. No one ever spoke like him. And the words that he spoke were provocative and powerful. So up to this point, Jesus has been kind of introducing himself to to different people on the outskirts, the the outcasts, if you will, in what we would call Galilee. And so he's been, uh, after his famous discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's been telling us uh, about these famous acts of power and authority. And there are nine of them uh, put together, you'll see, um, from chapter 8, 9, and 10. And we're, we're kind of in the second set of the triplets that, are, that make up those nine. That is, there you'll have three acts of power, miraculous works, and then an invitation and a call to discipleship, to follow Jesus. And then you have three acts of power or miraculous deeds, and then a call to discipleship. And then you'll see an, uh, another three, and then a call to discipleship. We're in that second of those calls to discipleship. And they get more personal, as we saw last week, that Matthew himself is interjected into the story. The other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, tell us who this is, but Matthew is pretty subtle about it because he wants you to see the main, thru- the main thrust of his point. He wants you to see that Jesus restores humanity as he even restored Matthew's humanity, a person who was known for his sin and known as an outcast and a traitor. So I want to reread some of that, spend a little bit of time recapping that and connecting it to the second half. We'll read from verse 9 all the way to verse 17. We'll spend most of our time on verses 14 through 17, but we'll reread this passage, a call of Matthew and a call of other disciples of outcasts. So beginning in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 9, let's read together. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, 
follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. We believe this is God's word, and my prayer for us this morning is that it becomes more than just ink on a page. It becomes the very words of our Creator to redeem us and to restore us. Up to this point, including last week, in a section of stories about tremendous and public acts of power, Jesus also teaches us about what it means to follow him. That is, inside these stories of power are invitations to be disciples of Jesus, so that we would get the explicit connection that to be a disciple of Jesus is to submit to the power and authority of Jesus. Now, for many of you, the words power and authority are awful because they're connected to someone using power and authority against you. But I'm inviting you here, and I think Matthew is too, for for us to see a redeemed view of power and authority. Because after all, Jesus has all the power and all the authority in the world. And what does he choose to do with it? Well, look what Matthew tells us he does with all the power and the authority in the world. Jesus is fasting, or excuse me, feasting with sinners and not fasting with the religious. He can do whatever he wants, attract any crowd he wants, command anyone to obey. He has all the power and the authority of, in the world. And what do we find him doing? Matthew wants us to see very clearly Jesus fasting with sinners. Excuse me, I'm going to get that mixed up more than once today, so just hang on. Feasting with sinners and not fasting with the religious. Last week we saw this tremendous act of authority is to call Matthew to himself and so let me recap that for just a moment. Jesus calls his disciples. In fact, that is what any of you in the room, if you would call yourself a Christian, to truly be a Christian is to know deep down inside of you that you haven't gotten a hold of Jesus as so much as Jesus has gotten a hold of you. There, there's something in us that even if we wanted to, we, we couldn't undo what Jesus has called us to. 
And there's something in us that knows that that there's something more powerful on us. Now, some of you are in the medical field. You know this, right? And even right now, you might be in this, even if you're not in the medical field. And there's a status of existence, what's known as on call, right? And for those of you who have ever been on call, you know your time does not belong to you. <laughs> like it, it's like, it looks like I'm here, but I'm not. I'm actually, I'm connected to whatever this device or whatever is about to take me somewhere else. That's a, a beautiful picture. Multiply that times the, the infinite nature of God in Christ, and you begin to see what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. We live in a way that our time and future is not our own. At any given moment, at any given moment, in any given circumstance, you and I are subject to what Jesus bids us to do. And we will, not, not possibly or might, we will forsake all the things around us for the calling of Jesus. Otherwise, friend, I want to call into question whether or not you really are a Christian. And so maybe even if you're in the room and, and you're not a Christian, and this, this, this thing about Jesus is compelling, or you're curious about it, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe you don't know, I'm really glad you're here because I want you to hear on its merits what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's more than just investigating claims, although it is that investigating who Jesus is and who he claims to be and who Christians historically have said that Jesus is. It's more than that. It is to hear and sense the God of the universe calling you out. And it's possible you might be here even in this room this morning because God is doing something. It's calling you to something greater. And that is a tremendous act of authority mixed in with these other miraculous acts. Jesus has authority, as we've seen, over chaos and nature. He has authority over even demonic and the spiritual. And then he has authority over sin to forgive, to cancel. And what we see here now is that Jesus restores the dignity and humanity of humans, of human beings. He restores the dignity and value of people that otherwise would not have it. You saw Matthew introducing himself here as a man who was sitting at the tax booth. That is, there wouldn't have been thought of anyone worse, but what we see here is when Jesus calls this person, he wouldn't expect Jesus to call. It upsets people. It provokes people because then it starts a movement of people who are called out of this life of sin, so much so that Jesus is not afraid of being misunderstood by associating with sinners. And as if that weren't graphic enough, we get the, the opposite side of that, right? As if the last passage that I read, that, that he was not only calling sinners, but he was associating himself with them. We find later chapters that he even, he even starts to take on the reputation, not by practice, but by association. So Mind you here, this is an invitation for the local church. This is, I hope, when we think about what membership of Connection Church looks like, this ought to be it. That we are just a bunch of sinners and rejects called by Jesus. That's it. There are no other, I would argue, category of people, but we are the ones who actually admit it. And we realize that in that there is hope. Jesus, he says here, didn't come to call the righteous. Jesus came to be a friend and a physician to sinners. And that is the welcome that the church of Jesus Christ offers. Woe to us if we can dehumanize others and think that we're above them. Did you hear that? Woe to us if we ever think we fit into some sort of category of people that don't need constantly the grace of Jesus. 
Because after all, that's human nature, isn't it? In times of fear, in times of loneliness, we band together. We, we band together usually against someone else. And Jesus says, I didn't come for the people who were on the in crowd. I came for the people who were cast out. So in verse 14, it's not only that he associates with these outcasts. That would be provocative enough. And we saw last week it is. It was enough to anger the Pharisees. But, but the, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist, who we'll, we'll get to know even later in the following chapters, those who were following John the Baptist, as well as the Pharisees, were not just provoked by the fact that he had associated with sinners, but that he had in some way disassociated himself from the religious. That is, that he not only was teaming up with and feasting with the outcasts, he was not participating in the religious practices that they would expect him to be participating in. After all, Jesus came to be one of us. He came for the in crowd. Why is he hanging out with them? So, I think we find at least five things. I think we get a little bit of a picture of fasting and religious practice that's instructive for you and I. We get a picture of the rightness of mourning and longing and even celebrating. Third thing, we, we get a picture of the nature of Jesus and weddings. Fourthly, we see that the days of mourning and, and the taking away, did you hear that language, of the bridegroom will come. And fifthly, we'll see the fitness and unfitness of mourning and celebrating. The fitness and rightness of a way of being and responding. So, Last year, it was last year, well, maybe last year too. Uh, last week, we saw the authority of Jesus illustrated in his calling of disciples, giving them a new name, a new identity, a new purpose, a new meaning. And that is the picture of calling them when you know that your life is not your own. And so this week, we see Jesus feasting with the sinners rather than fasting with the religious. And that's a provocative thing. Now, that might make not make any sense, but let's walk through and hopefully it will become more clear as we go along. So we get a picture of religious practices in general, but we also kind of get a glimpse in a word that I'll introduce you to, a word religiosity. That is not just a person who is engaging in religious practice, but a person who, in, in this sense, has, has a deep loyalty to and even finds meaning and purpose in their religious practices. And this would be entirely provocative for these people, right? That Jesus, who with great acts of power and authority, chose it not to participate in those religious acts. That's an affront, and not only that, but he was, meat, he was eating with, in this day and maybe even our own day, associating with people by the meals that he was sharing with others. Jesus is present in joy with those who know they need him. And yet Jesus, and this will be provocative, is strangely absent from those who choose their own religious performance over presence with him. Jesus is present with the outcasts, and Jesus is not present with those who rely on themselves rather than him. And this is beautiful. In one way, this is the, this is the heart cry and satisfying proclamation of all Christians everywhere. This is beautiful, and it will be true for you and me and Christ forever. Sinners feasting with Jesus. That, that will be us. Because of Christ, we will be feasting with Jesus forever and ever. But, but notice the, the paradox that we see here. 
You have Jesus being present with people who are sinful and in need of help, and evidently Jesus being absent from the people who had their own sense of what it would take to be right and holy before God. And so as a result, this little passage, I mean, there's a ton packed in here, but at least one of the things packed in here is the relationship between religiosity and the presence of Jesus. And here's the paradox. Religiosity will forfeit and sacrifice the presence of Jesus. That it is possible to engage in religious and pious acts and forsake the very presence of Jesus. Good things, like good things that that the Scripture would expect of us, that would reflect the character of God, can be done in such a way that is utterly and totally void of the presence and work of Jesus. Now, this shouldn't shock you. This is this is, this is present elsewhere. Luke chapter 10 tells a story of Jesus coming to visit in a village, Mary and Martha. Luke chapter 10, I commend it to you to even reflect on. It says that as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Welcoming Jesus into your house. And then she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha... Oh, and and these words ought to ring true for most of us. It ought to sting. Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, that is Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care? Just like whenever anyone asks you a question like that, that's a loaded question, some indignation. Don't you care? Like, no, right? (laughs) Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Boy, you're doing something when you tell Jesus something like this. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, right? The, rep- the repetitive nature is it's to appeal like, my, my God, my God, right? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Boy, I wish many of you would hear Jesus' words to you this morning. Friend, you are troubled and anxious about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, there are other instances of this, but the Bible is replete with examples of how religious activity, for its, for its purpose of appealing to others, we saw this in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, when you fast, when you give, as if to say, you will be doing these things, but when you do it, you don't do it to, to manipulate the opinions of others to appear a certain way, and you don't do it to manipulate God to get something you want. That isn't authentic or genuine. And this illustration shows that there were apparently two, there were two sisters, and, and they both chose something decent. Hey, I'm, I'm going to serve Jesus. If some, right? If someone told you that, like, go serve Jesus, serve Jesus, every, it's a good thing, absolutely. And yet he said, you've been distracted by it, and you've missed what is more important, and Mary has figured it out just sitting with me. And in this case, fasting or any other religious activity any other thing that we would think is good and right, right? We, we engage in a few of them. The reading of Scripture. We sing together, right? What a, what a culturally defiant thing to do, to sing out loud together. I hope we never lose how absurd that is in the world. You don't do that, right? Other than soccer games and, and, and birthday parties. And even then, you're, you're kind of like, this is, this is weird, right? We sing together. We gather together. 
We serve together. You're, you're, you're sitting and enjoying this building and someone prepared it for you. Some of you are sitting in quiet and peace under the teaching of God's word because your children are being cared for by someone else on the north side of the building. These are good things. But if they don't get you Jesus, if they don't get you more of him, then in fact they are the opposite of what Jesus came to accomplish, namely to give himself, all of himself, to you and to me. And so the idea here is that if you fast, you see the paradox of people who get to spend time with Jesus and evidently people who Jesus wouldn't hang out with who were fasting. The idea is this, like if you fast, but you don't get Jesus, then all you got was hungry. You didn't get the goal. And the goal is to get Jesus. So here's a way I think about fasting, but not only fasting, you could think of any sort of religious activity. Fasting is feasting on Jesus and feasting with Jesus. That's what fasting is. Fasting, we saw in Matthew 7, in 5, 6, and 7, he says that when you fast, we'll get back to that in a minute, in a minute but, but if what you do doesn't get you more of Jesus, then, then ultimately you are just worshiping and glorifying yourself. And that in and of itself won't have any value to change you or give you joy. And that will, as you know, puff you up. You'll become self-righteous, and you'll look down on all the people who don't do it just like you. Because after all, if you didn't get Jesus, then you just got something more of yourself. So, the goal is that we get more of Jesus. He is our satisfaction. Maybe for you, it's not fasting, but some other thing that you ascribe to, right? What we would understand of kind of the religious norms of our day are different. We live in a secularized culture in which we have a a basically kind of widely held, we'll say, civil religion, right? There's just a a, a general, there's a general built-in, right? It's it's found in the the Declaration of Independence probably better than anyone else. Like, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That all all men are created equal. Uh, They're endowed with these, like these, these gifts, right? These rights, by their creator, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that makes a really great civil religion. Because what's it saying? Don't hurt me, right? Don't get in my way. Leave me alone. And don't, under any circumstance, do something that would make me unhappy. And so, our civil religion is a little bit different. It's a little bit different. And yet, ought to also be just as provocative as we encounter Jesus. Because if you engage in those things but don't get you Jesus, you actually haven't gotten those things at all. And so, for those of us who know Jesus, we have encountered his presence. And we are freed from, right? We are freed from other kind of religious activity that strives to get something that it never fully gives. And we get all of that in Jesus. So, do you know Jesus? But maybe this week you spent most of your time relying on yourself. Is that you? You spent most of your time just kind of being self-sufficient and relying on yourself? Well, one, that was probably pretty lonely. Two, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Get from Jesus what he offers. And this will seem too good to be true for both the religious and the irreligious. That's the most famous and powerful 
person in all the universe would come and dine with people who don't deserve it, who are otherwise outcasts and rejects, that seems too good to be true. But it also seems too good to be true for the irreligious, or excuse me, for the religious. You mean I can get Jesus apart from my own works? You mean I don't have to approve myself to get what Jesus offers? You mean I don't have to earn God's favor? It seems too good to be true for both. So, he came so that you and I could admit our need and so that you could feast, even in the most hungry circumstance, on his presence. Are you saying I could be received into the feasting with Jesus this whole time? Yes. You find him feasting with sinners and not fasting with the religious. The second thing you see is uh, 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 the presence of Jesus is accompanied by celebration. The, the presence of Jesus is accompanied by celebration. And so we get this, this picture of mourning and longing, the idea of what you would experience in fasting or any sort of self-denial, and yet the, the feasting that these other people experience in the presence of Jesus. And friend, this is, man, think of this as just a very simple axiom that you and I declare to be true and will declare to be true forever and ever and ever that in the presence of Jesus, we find all the joy we, we could possibly imagine. After all, the psalmist says it this way, that at your, it says that in, in God's presence and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The fulfillment of this promise and this psalm is for us granted in Christ. That to be near him. Right, this, this is why we sing a, a, kind of a, a well-known hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We don't sing, Come Thou Blessing. And friend, most of you have spent most of this week singing that. Give me blessing, give me blessing, give me the thing, give me pleasure, give me comfort, give me the blessing. And we don't sing that. We sing, come the fount, the source, the means, the giver of every good blessing. Because it's so much more fun to be sitting and be inheriting all of the blessings that we get in Christ, as opposed to just hoping that he might give us what we need for the next few moments. We, we're, we're, we're more needy than that. We're more hungry than that. I don't just need a meal. I need all the meals. I don't just need breath and life. I need life more abundant. You see the picture here that, that you and I get to proclaim that in God's presence, the very presence of God, and in this case, you see a very real and tangible evidence, don't you? Because maybe you read that, oh, the, in God's presence is pleasure forevermore, so now I don't need to really work, right? I need to do whatever I can to get into the presence of God. And that, that isn't what Jesus says is the fulfillment of this promise, at my right hand, in my presence, are all the pleasures and joy that you could possibly want. Even prepare your heart now. This is what we get to start celebrating a month from now, right? As we, as we celebrate Advent. So many of you, like, maybe you just hear, hear the good news that, like, Advent is this declaration against this kind of reading. That, like, you got to do your best, clean yourself up, purify yourself, right? That's what they would have expected from Jesus. Don't hang out with those unclean people. They're going to infect you. They're going to infect your reputation. And they're not wrong. 
right? Bad company does corrupt good morals. This is a good and wise thing to understand. I, I saw... I saw an inspirational whiteboard quote uh, even this last week, right? It's like, uh, you can judge your success by the people you hang around with, right? Like people you associate with. And that's really cool if you're like a football team, right? And, or you want to succeed. And that's not necessarily untrue. And the Pharisees for, were right for seeing it. But notice that is not what we celebrate in Advent. We don't clean up our mess so that we can see and experience God's presence. God comes down and takes on the mess, And now we're free. We're free from striving. We're free to simply receive what he came to do and accomplish for us. And we're free to receive all the pleasures that are his right hand. That we don't earn, but he freely gives because that's just what he's like. So, think of it this way. We fight for the celebration that comes in the presence of Jesus. And we are keenly aware of the things that rob us of that joy. Here's the third thing we see is the nature of Jesus and weddings. Now, I, I, I feel like I could go on and on about this. Uh, here's what I'll just simply say. If you've ever uh, heard me preach at a wedding, I'm, I'm committed to this till I die. I can't think of anything better to say. But, but this is a beautiful picture that Jesus is giving us of the nature of God. So he's reclining at the table with these people, and that provoked questions. Disciples of John says, why are we fasting, but your disciples do not fast, right? Think, same thing, Martha, why, why am I serving and she's not? And Jesus is like, well, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And he, and he gives us three different kind of illustrations of things that don't fit, right? The first one is mourning at a wedding, right? And the second one is the, the fitness of patching a, a new, unshrunk, unproven piece of uh, cloth onto a, a, a proven or shrunken garment that doesn't fit. And then trying to place new wine in an old, used-up wineskin. It ruins it all, right? It just doesn't. It, the idea three times in a row is it doesn't fit. And so we get a picture of the nature of Jesus and the nature of weddings. And I want to encourage you, it is actually really good news And I want you to hear it on its merits. Jesus is the bridegroom. Do you hear him saying that? They're like, why aren't you leading your disciples to fast? And he's like, can they mourn if the groom is there? Now that might not seem like a big deal to you. Unless maybe you've attended a wedding that I've had the pleasure and honor of officiating, right? That this picture of marriage and its significance is found throughout the entirety of the Bible. But just start, even before you know that. Imagine what would be true about a person who comes to a wedding wailing and mourning. Just take yourself there. You're sitting and everyone's happy, everyone's dressed up. And then like, I now pronounce you man and wife, right? And and you can hear somebody go, no, right? Just stop for a minute. What would have to be true of that person for that to happen? And how unfit would that be? (laughs) There'd have to be something like, something about the celebration that, that didn't belong to them. It was somehow a loss for them. And Jesus is simply saying what you and I know. This is a cause for celebration. It's a picture of marriage, after all. That's what's beautiful about marriage. It's, it's the, it's, it, it, I think here we, we kind of get a glimpse of what marriage ought to be and how Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of these things. 
Jesus is the bridegroom, and in saying so, he is identifying with God because throughout, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, God refers to himself and is referred to by Israel as a husband, a husband who loves his wife. Isaiah 54 says it this way, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, and the God of the whole earth he is called. Jeremiah 31 says it this way, that in God's restoring work that will happen, his promise-keeping work that we experience in Jesus, he says, will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when, they took them, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For that covenant, my covenant, that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The prophet Hosea is called by God to be demonstrating in word and even in life the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful spouse. And he commits himself to love a woman who he knows will cheat on him. And that's the picture, the prophetic picture of the character of God as a husband who loves a wayward spouse. And the promise of restoration that we have in Christ, chapter 2 says it this way, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal or my idol. And then I will betroth you. Hear the language of marital faithfulness? I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. You get a picture, don't you, of the character of God and the beauty of marriage. Now, I know what some of you will say, like, I've never seen something like that. And maybe even the thought of that, because you and your own heart and life have been marred by unfaithfulness in marriage. Friend, then, then you above all know how devastating it is when this doesn't work out. But it's beautiful, right? Like, if some guy says to some woman, right, I don't know, after class, right, or in the backseat of some car, hey, I really like you a lot, and I think we should hang out together until something else comes along. You don't invite your friends for that. You don't get all dressed up and dance into the night over that. Right? There's nothing special about that. There's nothing even meaningful about that. The beauty of a wedding is that someone says, I mean, and frankly, they, says, they say things that they can't even possibly, promises they can't even possibly keep. It's an act of grace alone, right? And they're like, I'm going to be with you forever, forever, no matter what, in sickness and in health, right? Like, those are the kinds of things we gather, get dressed up for, and celebrate. And friend, the reason those are beautiful, and I would even say the reason why many of you are cynical about marriage is because in your heart you know how beautiful that is. And you know how devastating it is when it doesn't happen. But ask yourself, if you're so, right, if you're like, I don't believe in that kind of thing, I'm, you know, I'm, I've progressed beyond that. That's such an archaic, primitive form of, of relating to one another. I wonder, is it possible your cynicism comes from just a deep down desire that it really could be all that you wish it could be? Is it possible your cynicism is just protecting you from the deep devastation and hurt that happens when these kinds of commitments aren't fulfilled. So friend, that kind of radical, right, radical love and commitment is a picture of the character of God. I am your husband, says the Lord. That's the picture here. Isaiah 62 says it this way, you shall no more be termed forsaken, right? These are titles or 
names that, were, that, that, that these people, because of their sin and God's judgment, had begun to experience. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. You hear the, see the capital, right, the capital letters in each of these terms, they're like proper nouns. Here's, here's what people know you as, and this is what you will no longer be called. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. You hear it? Does it kind of at least soften some of your cynicism about these relationships that you know sometimes fail? And your land will be called what? Married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, what? So shall your God rejoice over you. This language is throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And listen what Jesus is saying. He is claiming to be the fulfillment of those longings. He is saying, I am the one. Can you mourn now that the bridegroom is here? Can you really mourn and long and weep? Finally, in Revelation chapter 19, we see this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. This is the beautiful picture that the angel of the Lord gives John as he has a vision of all things being restored. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for what has happened. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. For it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down, blessed are all those who are what? Invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the picture. This is what was built into creation. And that the, the first way God revealed himself to all of creation was that he made a man and a woman. And the first place that sin started to destroy all of creation was in that man and woman. And I know many of you feel the weight of that. Right? Because that just seems too idealistic, right? Right? This ideal picture of a man sounds awful, right? Oppressive. Sounds terrible for many of us. An ideal picture of a woman, that sounds awful. Oppressive. I don't want any of that, right? You feel it. It's too much. And that's because that's what sin has broken. That's what sin has destroyed. And yet, in Christ, we find the restoration of what was originally broken. And Jesus comes and says, you know that thing that is broken? I am the one who can fix it. I am the fulfillment of all of those longings for restoration. I am the one who meets those ideals. I am God of God, light of light, made flesh so that you would see what God is like. Hallelujah, for the Lord, the, our God Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. There's a feast that's celebrated in Christ and in marriage. A permanence that we find. A picture of commitment that's satisfying, especially for the romantics in the room. There's something beautiful about that. And yet, we find here Jesus saying, I am that fulfillment. You won't be able to find that kind of restoration and reconciliation apart from me. And so therefore, did you hear it? That's why my disciples aren't mourning. The people who know me and experience my presence cease from mourning because they get this. They realize that everything they've longed for, the love and affection 
right? The, the acceptance, the care and attention that you and I all wish we could have has been promised for us and fulfilled for us in Jesus. And so why would we mourn and rejoice now that we have received what God has given us in Christ? And so he gives us two more pictures of fitness, right? Two things that are, that are fit or unfit. One, you saw here, is the idea of fasting and the appropriateness of fasting or longing for something. And then the two that are parallel at the very end, that, that if you were to take a, a, a new, unshrunk, unproven, right, like think un, undeveloped uh, piece of cloth, and you, and you had a, a tear and an older piece of cloth, if you, if you sewed that new cloth onto it, it would begin to shrink, and then it would start to tear. And then, here's, here's the profound thing, it would destroy both. It would render them both useless. Same thing. Think of a, a wineskin here as a, a leather, right, or, or some sort of an animal skin that, that had the ability to expand but be somewhat airtight, right? And, and as it got wet, it, it, could only, it was really only good for one batch, right? Think of like you, you could only make, you could only make wine, a batch of wine out of, you know, with, with one set of skins. And after that, that was it. And you're like, if you went, if you went back to an old batch or an old wineskin and tried to make a new batch, did you hear it? Same thing would happen. It would destroy both. You would not only ruin the wine, you would ruin the wineskin. You would destroy both. Now, this unfitness is meant to be a paradigm, like a mini parable for us, so that we begin to see that what Jesus came to bring and to accomplish is not just some reformation of the old. He's not just dressing up their best efforts. He is doing something radically new. He is bringing a new kingdom and a new king. He is coming to make all things new. He is not coming to simply take the old stuff and dress it up and reform it. He is coming to start something utterly new. Now hang on to that. That kind of provocative statement is what's going to get him killed later. It would call that blasphemy. But it's meant to be provocative. That what Christ is doing is new and the old ways of being will be destroyed if you try to fit Jesus into it. For us practically, that means that if you try to kind of like baptize your way of being and kind of stamp Jesus on it, you not only do you corrupt and ruin who Jesus is, but you even corrupt and ruin your own sense of purpose and identity. Your own being and value is corrupted in that. Rather than simply like the sinners who welcomed and feasted with Jesus say, isn't this great? Isn't this great that the power of the universe has been poured out on us, not to condemn us, but to feast with us? And in all three situations, Jesus is pitting a new way over and against an old way. And let me warn you, as Jesus looks at you and your ways of being, your ways of believing, your ways of behaving, even on the most religious moments of your life, be prepared. He will intentionally provoke you. After all, what has he already done? He declared forgiveness. Just a few verses before, you're forgiven before he healed a man. And that provoked people. They were provoked by forgiveness. He was associating with sinners, and that provoked people by his association and presence. And then what is he doing? He's celebrating while other people are fasting, provoked by joy. Provoked? Offended by joy? Well, you know what this is like. You know when you're really sad, maybe really depressed, in deep despair, right? Really disappointed. And that person who's always happy comes into the room, right? 
What's your first inclination? Oh, you're right. I should be happy. No. Do you see it? It's provocative. Are you so happy? Right? Don't you know what I have? Do you hear it? Do you hear the old cloth and the new cloth destroying one another? Do you hear the, right, do you, do you hear the, the new wine and the old wineskin starting to destroy one another? Unless it is made new, it will simply be provocative. It will simply be offensive. Offensive joy. Just think of that for a moment, what it would look like in, in our world, right? With, with everyone, look, with good reason, all the despair, discouragement, uncertainty, all the fear that is being, right, campaigned on even now, what would it look like for us to have an offensive amount of joy? Right? Can you just imagine like them people saying to you and to me, why aren't you freaking out? And what would we say? Hey man, it's it's not right to freak out and mourn when I've got the bridegroom on my side. It's unfit. It doesn't fit. And we begin to see a picture of what Christ is doing for us, what Christ has accomplished for us. It means practically we leave behind old ways of relating to God, old ways of coming to God on our own merit, and experience the radically new, completely new, utterly new gift of God's grace. Because after all, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist are still in force today brooding over all the evils in the world, all the while missing out on the beautiful causes for celebration that God is doing in our midst. It's as if to say, be on the lookout for signs of grace. These are causes for genuine celebration because they're evidence of the presence of Jesus. And trying to fit Jesus into old ways of being misunderstands both. So we don't look to religious practice or function for true satisfaction. We look to Jesus. Don't look to yourself for fulfillment. Look to Him. He is the fulfillment of all of our longings in the bridegroom. We feast upon Christ even in the midst of self-denial. In the practice of self-denial, we actually begin to experience the grace of God to be just that, to, to be a person who's free to deny ourselves. And our religious practices are never the proof of God's presence. They just simply turn into the evidence of and the grace that we experience. And our practices, singing, reading the Bible, you name it, start to flow from our experience of Jesus. Because haven't you ever done that? Haven't you ever gotten these two mixed up? Maybe for you in the, in the room, you call yourself Christian. You've read the Bible, but you didn't get any Jesus out of it. No joy, right? Dare I say, haven't you come into this building before on a Sunday morning? Maybe even sang a little. Maybe even listened to something preached, but didn't get any Jesus. You see it? Don't despair. That's our disposition. That's exactly what Jesus says you should expect. And so how is it that we'll get out of this mess? How is it that we'll get everything that we long for? I want you to see it. See the groom who is taken away for us. Cradled right in the middle of this, Jesus gives us a glimpse into what will happen. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Right? I'm God, the bridegroom, here to fulfill things. Mourning is not appropriate. But here's what he tells us. The days will come when the bridegroom is, did you hear this language? It's almost violent. It's the language of abduction. 
there is a time that will come. The days will come when the bridegroom is what? Taken away from them. And then on that day, they will fast. So friend, how do you experience this kind of joy? How do you experience this kind of celebration as, as those who, who experience Jesus and his very presence reclining with sinners? Friend, behold, see the groom, the groom that was taken away for us. He was the one that was snatched away. Jesus was the one who came into our contamination to become that contamination. And the most devastating thing that had ever happened in all of history, the greatest injustice that had ever happened, the righteous and innocent one, the only one who was ever truly blameless, was betrayed, falsely accused, and publicly hung naked to die. And friend, that was a cause for mourning, wasn't it? But can I give you just a glimpse into what happens after that? After the resurrection, Luke in chapter 24 tells us a little, about this, a little bit about this, and John 21 tells us a little bit about this. All right, Jesus gives a picture of what's going to happen, how it is that he's going to be the bridegroom. He's going to be the one snatched away. And so in Luke 24, as he was uh, walking along to, with some people on the way to Emmaus who didn't recognize him, there were his disciples, evidently, and it says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. Now, remember this picture, right? This idea that Jesus has come, he's going to fulfill all of our longings, but when he's taken away, there's going to be great despair, great loss. And then the people will fast, right? This picture that people will be starving and fasting because they're longing for God's presence again. And listen to it's multiple times. We get little tips about just little resurrection joys that are, that are pointed to. In verse 30 of Luke 24, it says, When he was at table with them, he took the bread, he blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Later he appears to the other disciples. It says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, you'll love this, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate, them, ate it before them. Do you hear little hints that the gospel writers, writers showed to us? A time is coming, and we will know, we will know that our satisfaction has been fully offered to us in Christ, because in our mourning, in our longing, he will come and eat with us. John 11 says, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And who had cooked it and prepared it? Jesus, best cooking show in the world right there. I'd love to see how you fish for him. Right? And Jesus said to him, said to each of them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. Because he just told them to fish on the other side. Likely they'd gone back to their old ways. And he said, yeah, you can't do anything without me, not even fish. And he tells them, fish over here, right? And it swamps the boat. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Do you hear it? The way we are satisfied is we behold and look to the one, the groom who was taken from us. 
the one who was taken from us, even now as we receive grace and joy and hope in him, we long for him to come back and make all things new. We long for him to come back and say these kinds of things, right? How do we respond rightly? We begin to see that Jesus is the one who is taken away instead of us. And we long for him to come and make all things new. Because in the same way that it was unfit for these disciples to mourn in the very presence of Jesus, so also in some small way it's unfit for us to mourn now that we've been given grace of, the grace of God in Jesus. We grieve, Paul tells the Thessalonians, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. That would be unfit. That'd be unfit. I'd be like crying for sadness at a wedding. It's unfit, unwelcome even. As if Jesus says to us, in some sense, that our grief is unfit. Because we know also that Jesus one day will return and banish all sorrow completely. It will be unfit. It will be unwelcome even. Stop starving. I'm here. I'm the bread of life. No more pain. I'm here. Stop weeping and stop crying. I'm here. Here's my favorite one. No more sinning. I'm here. No more suffering. I'm here. No more dying. I'm here. Friend, ask Jesus. Look to him for his presence and to give you forgiveness and comfort. Look to him. And even put away the practices that are unfit of experiencing his presence in your life. Repent of them and turn to him and rejoice and celebrate. Feast with him. As who? The one who is a friend and physician of sinners. Stop striving to prove that you're something you're not. Martha, (laughs) sit at his feet. Enjoy him. Think of it this way. If you want to see how well you're doing, don't look at yourself. If you want to see how well you're doing, Look to the bridegroom who comes to feast with sinners, to restore us to right fellowship with the Lord, to restore our relationship with our Creator, to reconcile us in light of our sin. He is the one who was snatched away, betrayed, and beaten so that you and I would be welcomed into the feasting. Behold, see the groom who was taken away for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you have stepped into the places we could not ourselves step. You have done for us what we could not ourselves do. I pray that for some in this room, maybe this is the first time they've considered the mystery of who Jesus is and what he's done. I pray even now in the midst of great despair and sorrow that they would receive the invitation to feast with Jesus. Might we admit that we are, because of our sin, because of our failure and frailty, we're the outcasts. We're the ones that the Pharisees would, would likely say, well, why, why is Jesus coming to them? And yet, what a mystery to behold. Even though that's absolutely true, here we are feasting in his presence, feasting on his grace and forgiveness, feasting on his mercy, being satisfied in the depths of our soul by the good news that he's come to give us all that we long for, to make right all that was broken. 
might even now the gift of faith be given to many in this room. Might they, might they look to Jesus and turn to him. For some of us, maybe the right response is to, to realize all the ways that we're trying to accomplish by our own merit and effort what is unfit in Jesus' presence. Might many of us dispense with striving for something that Jesus freely gives? Might we begin to experience his presence in a radical and renewing way? Might we begin to long for what we know ultimately will happen? Might we receive by faith today the promise that he has taken away our sin and guilt and one day he will take away all of our suffering? A time is coming when when like mourning at a wedding, it will be unfit to mourn because Jesus will have come to make all things new, restored each of us, put back together, clothed us with his righteousness. And the only fit thing to do will to be rejoice in his presence, feasting with him forever. Might you implant a deep joy and rejoicing and hope and celebration into our hearts this morning for those who need it. Renew us, renew reinvigorate our joy with a vision and a picture of a bridegroom who's come back to renew and restore us. We thank you for the feasting and celebration we have in Jesus and we look forward to in Jesus. And it's by his grace we pray. Amen.